A quick heads up for listeners, this episode contains graphic imagery and discussions of violence. It also deals with terrorism, drug references and suicide references. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, you are listening to FBI Radio 94.5, streaming online or on the podcast. My name is Mia Hull and this is Out of the Box. Every week I sit down with one guest and take a deep dive into the stories and songs that have defined their life. Right now I'm recording from the FBI studio in Redfern, which is on unceded Gadigal land, and my guest today is joining me remotely from Wadi Wadi country. I'd like to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal and Wadi Wadi elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that this broadcast is coming to you from stolen Aboriginal land. Today I'm joined by recipient of the Sydney Peace Prize, Dr George Giddos. George is an artist, filmmaker and activist and for more than 50 years has enlisted his skills in the arts to confront violent war zones around the world. There are a million things that I want to ask, so I'm just going to dive right in. Thanks so much for joining me on Out of the Box today, George. Oh, thank you, Mayor. It's fantastic. When Helen said I was talking to FBI, I thought, oh my God, they're onto me again. But then I realised it was you. <laughs> So I guess the word international crops up a lot when we talk about the things you've done with your life. Let's go right back to where that started, just down the road in Rockdale. Mm -hmm. What was your childhood there like? Well, I grew up in that asphalt jungle. In those days, there weren't enough cars to worry about playing cricket on the road. You just moved the garbage bins when a car came. But um, there were only two... Uh, English-speaking Australian origin sort of families there, me and our neighbours, and the rest were all refugees from World War Two. And I love Rockdale. I go back. I went to Cockra High School, and it's the most you know. It's like the Ellis Island of Australia. Uh, when the Vietnam War came, the uh, Vietnamese came. I'm still friends with Vietnamese schoolmates, and um, so uh, I'm so ancient. It was before television, and. I decided to do puppet shows in the backyard. And uh, my dad would come home and there'd be sometimes 300 kids in the backyard. And he started collecting the money and uh, gave it to the Red Cross. And I became like a phenomenon. They sent me to scout halls and everything. This is just primary school level, Bexley Primary School. But it was the greatest experience of my life because Red Cross people finally showed me what my money was doing. And I realised that art could be converted into stuff that could help people overseas and show, show people how much Australians cared about them. And I was lucky I could just go across the road and try Italian a bit further up, uh, you know, uh, Balkans food, Russian food and all these cultures and all their stories. And I started collecting their stories for my puppet shows and I'm, that's still what I'm doing. I haven't changed a bit. A really yeah, international perspective from day dot... Where were you in life when art started to become important to you and you started to express those stories visually? Well, I was lucky. I had a really bohemian mother and uh, Dad built her a studio in the backyard and I'd remember I'd come back home with the football team and Mum would be there with topless, you know, making a sculpture of her own breast, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> naked top half and the boys' eyes would pop out of their heads and... Uh, and she said, oh, look, just go into the kitchen. I'll put the ingredients out. Make your own afternoon tea, boys. I've got to go on with the sculpture. But uh, So I was lucky. And Dad was a crooner. He could sing. And, uh, you know, but also my grandfather was a dark sort of character. He was like organised mm-hmm. crime. And he taught me how to fight. And what I do in all these places is um, you've got to be, have the nerve of a bank robber, you know, to get into Baghdad, for example, when... The Americans are invading and all the borders are closed and everyone tells you you can't do it. Or even now, like getting into Jalalabad um, with the Taliban there. Um, I learned all those skills from the people who defy authority in Australia, who are the people who are involved in gambling and racehorses and you know all that kind of slightly crooked stuff. Yeah, and, and before we do get into that stuff, I want to talk about 
your time at the University of Sydney. What were you doing there? I had had problems at school. You know, I got kicked out of Cogra and went to Kingsgrove North. And uh, I had a bit of a conflict with the headmaster. I think I knocked him over his desk. And the vice, I thought that's the end of that school. And the vice principal uh, realised that the headmaster had had a few drinks and wanted to cover it up. So I really didn't have to obey any rules after that. I never wore a uniform and hardly ever went. And I had this, these friends that were right into reading Camus and Sartre and everything, you know, Greek. So I just educated myself and to my surprise I came second in the high school certificate in the school and got a Commonwealth scholarship to Sydney University. But while I was there, my dear professor, Bernard Smith, invited Clement Greenberg to come to Australia, who at that time was the great you know, American art critic. He showed American art and he only had one student who he could show the art to because I was doing hard-edged minimal abstraction, but I didn't know about American stuff. And Greenberg looked at it and he said, well, yeah, man, you know, you've got to get out of this dump. You know, I just realised I've only been here for four days and Sydney's a dump. You know, <laughs> come, to, come, come to New York, you know, this is where you've got to be. And he was kind, he helped me. That, that letter he wrote me after that is still in the Mitchell Library. But when I got there, uh, I just realised that abstract art was over, like... Um, Philip Gaston, you know, Gaston had been a great abstract painter, but with the Vietnam War going on, you know, I was there when uh, the astronauts were going around the moon and coming back with ticker tape parades at the same time as bodies were coming back in plastic bags from Vietnam and it was the height of the race thing. And so I started doing my photojournalism there and my best friend became Joe Delaney, the great artist of the African-American uh history movement you know and he was friends with um the black panthers and well you can imagine how an 18 19 year old boy was thrilled to be rubbing shoulders with the black panthers and this is fbi imagine the music i was experiencing and um so uh, i remember one amazing moment where joe said hey george we got a meeting on down at Harlem Temple, you know, you've got, to, you've got to come. And I got there, I was the only white person there, this naive young Australian, pimply-faced, long-haired white boy with blue eyes. And here's all these black panthers with their guns in the back of their belts and everything. And I thought I could just disappear. I sort of slunk into the shadows somewhere. And at the end, Joe came up and said, well, we've got an Australian guest today, everyone. <laughs> you know, That's George Giddos. He's an artist and he's up the back there. And I told him to bring his pencils and his paper and he's going to draw your babies. So certainly I had all these beautiful black women with Rubenesque chubby little babies. And I had four... Uh, Black Panthers standing behind me trying to find any hint of racism in the way I drew these babies. I'd love some of those drawings to turn up. But I I became good friends with all of them. When I had a a show about a decade ago in Houston, a bus full of Black Panthers came to the show and (laughs) everyone who was viewing the paintings in the museum suddenly disappeared. But, um, no, that was the beginning of it all. It's certainly <laughs> quite a strong start. George, you've chosen an Amy Lou Harris song for today. Why did you pick this one? I'm just thrilled by this song. It's um, Michelangelo, but it's a song for all artists. It's like um, Don McLean's Vincent. You know, it's just, it's just, it's for all the artists out there, not just for me. I love it. And they may not have heard it. We'll jump into that one right now on Out of the Box. This is Emmy Lou Harris. The song is called Michelangelo. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. Did you suffer at the end with every no one to remember? Did you banish all the old ghosts at the terms of your surrender? And could you hear me calling out your name? Well, I guess that I will never know. Michelangelo, it was Emmy Lou Harris on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull, and right now on Out of the Box, I am joined by Dr. George Giddos. We were talking just before about your trip to New York and the beginning of your career as an artist. I want to jump to 1969 when you returned to Australia. What brought you back 
Well, I think my mother brought me back. <laughs> my mother was um, worried about whether I'd be getting on drugs and all the sorts of things she was reading about. Um, I'd been working with Andy Warhol and people like that as well. Uh, it was funny, on the way back, um, this is a music story, uh, Frank Zappa had been around at uh, the factory and um, he came up to Andy Warhol and said, I need a psychedelic uh, cover. And Andy said, oh, well, George can do that. And, uh, but I did something that was too wild for the record companies and uh, saw him just as I was going back to Australia. But Andy's factory inspired me and Martin Sharp had been in London with uh, he, he, the pheasantry and he, he did, wrote songs for Cream and uh, Clapton and all that. And, you know, just coming back to Australia, it was dead. I remember the plane dropped down in, um, in Darwin and I could hear the slow Australian voice. Oh, yeah, well, just put it over, you know, just put it over there, mate, you know. Just put it over there, you know. We'll be a while before we can get over and take the baggage. Uh, what have I done? But... Um, it was Askin Sydney, it was and, and but it was also the Vietnam War and the um GIs were coming in drunk and I'd have to use my skills um with handling tough people to make sure that we got them out before they tore the place to pieces. And also dealing with the mob, you know, like King's Cross then was controlled by Al- Abe Saffron and um they came around and said to me, George, what about, you know, the Yellow House needs to pay um protection money and I just looked at them like something out of the godfather and said forget about it <laughs> and they did yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, so, so having a kind of sketchy granddad came in handy well then. well you know all these rich boys from uh, who'd been to Cranbrook and places like Martin and Brett Whiteley and so I wouldn't didn't know the protection that I gave them actually yeah the, the protection that you're talking about you've just mentioned the Yellow House Art Collective which is something you co-founded in 1970 what is that well it was just a way that Sydney was just so far behind the times, not quite as far behind the times as it is in 2021, but way behind the times then when we had the Beatles and everything else. And so while um, Martin, Brett and I and others could have had a career overseas, we decided to give our time and everything to the Yellow House. But the problem was, you know, we all of, all of our work was uh, based on art, you know, so people had go into the stone room, which I'd done from a Magritte painting, like a 3D Magritte painting, and they'd say, shit, man, what were you on? <laughs> what were you on? And I'd say I was on art. They'd go into my <laughs> puppet theatre and I'd say I was on Matisse, and they'd think I was on acid. <laughs> Towards the end, it, it got very frustrating, and I remember uh, Martin and I were about to close it, and we went and sat in a cafe, and Martin look, looked at me and he said, you know, we should have done this in Vietnam. That's where we could have made a real difference. And we didn't know how to do it. And then I've spent the rest of my life taking Martin's challenge. And I'd, I'd come back. He was He's a bit older than me. And i debrief after I'd been in Iraq or Afghanistan or Nicaragua or wherever. And, uh, yeah, so that was the challenge. Um, the, the problem with doing the Yellow House was that um, I'd had the puppet theatre as a kid and I could see how that was helping people overseas. But doing the Yellow House, I seemed to just be helping a lot of people you know, take drugs and have a good time and, and um, it seemed a waste. And, yeah, you, you mentioned moving it overseas, which you have been successful in doing. I want to talk about that later in the show. But before we get to that, I want to jump around in the timeline a little bit and stay right here in Australia to talk about the projects that you've done here. George, tell me about the role that Aboriginal storytelling has played in your practice. Well, my first uh, documentary, I real, I've made experimental films and uh, I realised they would never reach the mainstream, so I decided to make documentaries. But back then, like that's late 70s, uh, Australia was so much into assimilation, they felt that Aboriginal culture was finished. You know, you, weren't, you wouldn't see Aboriginal art in the art galleries, there'd be no Aboriginal musicians on the radio... And I've, I've got a family connection with Angonia uh, through my grandmother. And Ruby, the two old ladies at, at Angonia, Ruby died recently. I went, went and saw her before she died in Burke. Um, they said, you know, no one here can um, read or write, George. And we get contract, you know, we get mining companies putting something in front of us asking us to sign it and we can't read it. So I got given 
these boys that are kind of related to me and, and girls. And so I brought up five of them intimately and a lot more with their friends. And I'm terribly proud they ended up going to university. Um, Bruce Shillingsworth, uh, who regards me as his father, he's in his 50s now, and uh, he, um, he was the star of Tracks of the Rainbow, this first documentary made about them going back and finding their culture. The old women in Gonia still had the culture, but all the men had died, so I, I had to take them to the Northern Territory to get initiated. I'd already been initiated myself. I took them all the way through Pippi. And they're still the, one of the biggest, most joyous things in my life. Serica, uh, who's like Bruce's daughter, is a sports champion, but she wants to make films, and so does his son. So they're going to take over our business. They're looking after this house while we're and all the equipment and running it while we're, <laughs> we're in Afghanistan. So um, you know, Helen loves it. She's called Auntie. And um, it's like that everywhere, you know, like everyone in Afghanistan who we're close to calls me Baba, which means father. And in some cases, um, just like with Ruby and the Pitman and Gonya, um, the fathers of the young artists in Afghanistan and mothers, when they've been dying, and they've nearly all died, have said, George, you've got to look after our children when we're gone. And um, that's why I've just spent the night... I'm probably sounding crazy in this interview because I've spent the last few nights trying to get them airlifted out of Kabul and to safety. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been a long story and uh, storytelling is everything. Every, everything I do, just like with Aboriginal art, like when I'm sitting down with Bruce and we're painting, uh, his painting will be about his mother's country and you'll see the rivers and where she was... You know, she was born under a tree and the tree where she was born and where the ceremonies were. And then you look, you know, at any of my paintings and there's a story attached to it, a beautiful story. And um, so I believe that those stories are important. And then if you look back over my life, uh, I, it's like a graphic novel. There's a painting, a photograph or a film to, to illustrate every little bit of it. And, um, you know, we're going through an amazing time at the moment with... I'm terribly proud of the way Indigenous cultures um, going to the forefront. Like, I think the last um, 10 years or so, an Aboriginal paintings won the Landscape Prize, the Win Prize, and um, wonderful films being made by Indigenous people. And that's what we fought for back in the 70s and 80s to see that happen, and now it's happening. So we're overjoyed. You know, there's reason for optimism, and it's, it's great. <laughs> And, and I'm very happy to think Giddo's films will someday be Shillingsworth films. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to think about that as well. George, you've chosen a song by The Doors to play on the show today. Why did you pick this one? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a, a mystic and um, uh, Morrison's talking about going over the other side. And since I was a child, I'd, I, I can't really see the dark if I'm... I'm I've never taken drugs because I don't need to. In, if, if I'm in a dark room, I just see thousands of butterflies and beautiful coloured paisley shapes and things. And uh, I think that's what the other side's about. I've always had this world and the other world simultaneously. And, you know, my book is called Blood Mystic. And people ask me why, um, you know, why I'm not frightened. And it's not a macho thing. It's, I'm not like a war junkie or something. I'm a what I call a blood mystic, which is um, someone who's got so much faith in the soul and the spirit and the fact that we continue um, that I don't really fear death. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm friends with the Dalai Lama. I did his portrait and I had this great moment with him where he's the, the leading light of, of Buddhism and he's supposed to be aiming for non-existence, the Buddhist goal. And he looked me in the eye and he said, George, I love the world so much that I want, to, I want to keep being reborn while ever there's sentience. And then he pointed his finger at me. He said, but I don't want to be uh, reborn if I haven't got self-awareness. So I agree with him. You know, I feel that we just keep on going on. Um, you know, I, I feel a lot of my talents are hung over from other lives. And the thing that annoys me the, most these days is the way that science is winning. It's become the new religion. And they're even saying that Computers can paint and create music, but who wants to listen to the life story of a computer? You know, what, what art is about is the human experience and what's internal. 
And my dear mother, who was also a mystic, she was a bit of a witch, <laughs> mum said, you know, a work of art won't work, like one of her ceramic sculptures, unless you can put a piece of your own soul into it. So I believe that I might be painting with paint, but I'm putting spirit into the pictures. So that's why the other side is so important. Yeah, certainly the story of someone's life is of interest to us, and it's what we're doing right now on Out of the Box with plenty more to come after this song. It's by The Doors. It's called Break On Through to the Other Side. It was The Doors and Break On Through to the Other Side on FBI Radio 94.5. You are listening to Out of the Box. Mia Hull is my name and right now I'm joined by artist, filmmaker and activist George Giddos. Just a content warning, we are about to talk about some pretty graphic and pretty violent themes. So if you're a bit sensitive to that, best turn it down for the next 10 minutes. George, for more than 50 years, you've worked in violent war zones around the world. But right now, I do just want to focus on your first trip to Nicaragua. I understand it had a pretty big impact on your practice. What happened? Well, before going to um, Nicaragua, I'd made a film called Warriors and Lawmen, where uh, it upset the Northern Territory Police because it's about how they'd murdered an Aboriginal leader, Takia. And... That was pretty scary, uh, being in your own country and irritating, you know, the cops. And I thought, well, I've got to see if I can do this somewhere else. I wanted to make it about the women because the greatest revolutionaries of that um, war were women. So I made Bullets the Poets about the women poets. The word externalism comes up a lot when looking at your work. George, where did you first learn about that? Well, it was like the rebellion that I had against abstract art in America. When I went to Nicaragua in 1986, um, the kind of art which is still dominant in museums, conceptual art, and art that says art for art's sake, um, and almost art that's, you know, un, un, it, people do not understand. For example, in England at the moment, there's, they're having, getting artists to do works of art to help save the environment, and... Uh, a guy's just painted a white canvas with sump oil and he's thrilled by this dirty black canvas, but the public won't get it that that's an environmental thing. It needs, you know, he's saying, oh, well, it'll be terrific, it'll never um, dry. But uh, so externalism, Ernesto Cardinal had realised that everyone could write poetry and that normal, every experience in life, but in, in poetry art, music, everything, it's all become art is about art and you don't do anything political or anything literal or anything narrative. And so the art I do is still disliked by most people in the high art world, the gatekeepers, because it's narrative, it tells stories and it's about the world. Um, there are people in the art world who would hate to know that I was having any success because the thing they despise most is art which has politics in it. Uh, you know, art's supposed to be pure, but externalism just told me how stupid that was. So in practice, what does externalism look like on a canvas? Well, externalism is, in poetry, because it's a po- poetry movement, is accepting that what's on the outside, what is external, is infinitely poetic, whether it's in painting or in words. And you don't have to be like T.S. Eliot and make up images from Greek mythology and, you know, like it doesn't have to be academic. That, And so it's very, very much a community thing that really anyone can do it. It's about st- storytelling and living in the present. I say that I write with my feet and the main thing I've written is my life and that's why I have to keep walking, you know. Like uh, Johnny Cash said, you know, it's all about being there and uh, walking the walk, walking the line, and um, that's what it's about. So I just love the fact I'm looking, looking from you across to my studio 
and all the recent works are about um, saving the barrier reef and the climate and the environment and the stupidity of burning fossil fuels and so on. They're not about George Gittos. But I'm in there because it's my weird style of drawing and painting, but none of them are about me. Yeah, and, and, and talking about the world outside, George, your work spans the globe. And if we had more than an hour together, I would love to delve deeper into the role that you've played confronting violence in war zones across the globe. But yeah, we only have an hour. So I want to use this time to talk about Rwanda, just because it seems to be a place that you continually return to in your art making. Why is that? Well, Rwanda was like going back to the time of the Romans where you'd have a battle and they'd be using swords and knives and clubs. It was the most primitive thing. We had, um, I was at a a, a cathedral where people had come, they were internally dis- displaced refugees uh, because they thought they'd pr- be protected by the church and religion. It is a Catholic country. And the RPA, which is K- Kagame's ar- army, he's the present president, came in and started slaughtering people, but with machetes. And um, oh, you've got no idea. Like it, it wasn't like... That's why you need an artist, because... Although I took some of the most important photojournalist photos of my life, the experience was like a horror movie, you know, being in the dark and hearing people screaming and babies crying. And um, there, was, there was a supernatural element to it as well in that um, in, in Rwanda and that part of the world they believe in Shitani, which are uh, evil spirits, and... Uh, people would grab me at times and say, see them, see them, and I couldn't see them. And they'd say they could see a giant, monstrous creature uh, that was taking control of these killers and making them do it. So it was a a supernatural element that you can't get on a camera. So I had to extend myself to my limit. I had to draw, I had to paint, and and I had to save lives. Um, With my art, the reason why I don't have post-traumatic stress, even from Cabello, is that I never use my camera or drawer or anything if I can be saving a life. So, yeah, you know, Rwanda was powerful and that's why I realise I have to work in so many different mediums because when you have an experience as deep as that, um, it's not enough just to be a photographer, just a filmmaker, just a painter, just a drawer. And it's all embodied in two works, one called Eyewitness, where I came over and there was this teenage girl and she'd, her head had been chopped, her face had been chopped and I went to one of the UN doctors and I said give me some morphine for her and they said George we're so low on morphine why don't you just go over and she's going to die, be with her and don't let her die on her own and her name was Immaculate and she was beautiful and um, I started drawing her and she said I don't look like that uh, because you know she had this big slash in her face and then she said, why are you doing this in a quite accusatory way? And I said, because I want the world to see uh, what's been done to you. And from that moment on, she cooperated and she stayed alive just long enough to finish the drawing. And I turned it to her and um, she put her hand on her chest and she said, promise me the world will see this. And a few seconds later, she, she was dead. And um, I've done painting after painting of Immaculate and they've been all over the world, Germany, America, Australia. They're on the cover of books and I've, 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 tried, you know, I've kept Immaculate in my heart. So when you're drawing, if I'd taken a photograph of Immaculate, and I did, I wouldn't have gotten to know her story and I wouldn't have come close to her. I could have just kept on moving on. And then the, the other one, my most famous painting, my career as the preacher. And in a massacre like that, uh, the... People lose their dignity, they're so frightened. So one morning I woke up and there's a hole in a piece of wood which led to a trench where you're supposed to go and urinate. There was no covering around it. And I looked down and I was about to urinate and I saw a woman looking up at me. A mother had crawled through the hole and stood in the faeces and everything else all night. And She had one child on her chest and two more standing with her. And I got her out and then... I started walking and I saw a man's eyes peep out of the mud. He just pushed mud all over himself, hoping no one would see him. And then I heard the most beautiful singing I've ever heard in my life, African spiritual singing. And I came up and here's this beautiful man, the preacher, and he's reading to them from 
the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament um, Sermon on the Mount in French, and he'd given them their dignity back. They were singing, and they knew they were going to die, but they weren't. They're going to die beautifully, you know, with faith. And he was like the bravest person I've ever met. And I went up and I said to him, "Do you think?" If I stayed, it might give you some safety. He said, George, we all know that they want to kill you. You're documenting this thing. Uh, but I've got a cu- some boys here. Can you get them out? And, uh, you know, their mothers and fathers have been killed in the night. So it took me a while to get them out. and I got them to safety. I hid them under a truck. And then I came back and the preacher and the whole of his congregation were dead. And um, so you can imagine the burden was on me. As soon as I got back to Australia, I... I painted the preacher and to my surprise it won the Blake Prize and it's been on the covers of books and it's now in the National Gallery in Canberra and um, it's even on Bibles in Africa. <laughs> it's, and Nelson Mandela loved it. Wow. And uh, that's why, why he organised me to exhibit around South Africa. Uh, it's become a, an icon and so this wonderful brave preacher has not been forgotten. Mm. That's such a poignant story, George. I, I want to jump into a song by Jackson Brown now. Why did you choose this song? Well, it's Lives in the Balance, and it was interesting. When Mandela asked me to do a show in South Africa, I, I, and it went around all the big cities, I thought Lives in the Balance, because that was the song that came out when I was in Nicaragua, when this whole thing started. And it's about a photojournalist. It's about someone doing what I do. Mm. And um, my dear friend Johnny Lewis, Australia's greatest photographer, who's now passed away, sadly, uh, he made me take Lives in the Balance, the album, to Nicaragua with me, and I just played it over and over again while I was in in cars. It became our anthem to make us brave when we were doing what we were doing. Of course, our lives were super at risk in Nicaragua. And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone And there are lights in the balance There are people on the fire There are children in the camps And there is blood on the wall That was Lives in the Balance by Jackson Brown on Out of the Box. It was chosen by my guest on the show today, artist, activist and filmmaker Dr George Giddos. I want to jump to the 11th of September 2001. George, it was a cultural focal point. Most people can tell you, you know, exactly where they were when they heard about the attack on the World Trade Centre and most people can talk about how their lives changed since that day. So I want to put that question to you. How did it impact your life? Well, I was in um, I was in Nablus in Palestine, working with the you know with the Palestinians. And the day before nine eleven, I'd gone to a telephone box because the family were putting flowers there, and uh, their son had gone, who was you know he, he was a an activist for for the Palestinians, not a PLO or a terrorist, and they'd wired the telephone box to explode when he tried to make a phone call and he'd been killed I did a drawing of it and I was doing a painting of it and it was like the shape of the Twin Towers building and um, you know it brought the two sides of the world together like the anger that the world has over a lot of these things like you know what's happened in Gaza and all these other places it translated into 9-11 and that was, it was terrible. So I virtually went immediately to uh, New York and did a series of works there. But for me it was very, very disappointing because I'd spent the previous 10 years, uh, doc- even when I was in Palestine at that time, the Oslo Agreement had come out and it looked like there was going to be an end to the fighting and the problems in Palestine. But I'd seen Mandela come to power in South Africa. Optimism was in the air and suddenly, uh, you know, the Cameroons had been defeated in, in Cambodia and the, uh, in Bosnia, the war had ended, the siege had been there. And so the world just seemed to be finally coming to its senses. And then 9-11 derailed it. And then we suddenly had George Bush. And, um, you know, uh, I helped, I went straight into helping Michael Moore shoot Fahrenheit 9-11. And, and so I found myself hurled into a war, world of 
more war than I ever expected to see and, um, and I'd had such great hopes for peace. So there's a whole decade of my work, which is my peacekeeping work, where I went with peacekeepers to Somalia and Cambodia and Western Sahara, not as an official war artist but just as George Giddo's and I was doing that at the same time as going to Bosnia and South Africa and all the other places. Uh, but I'm still optimistic. Like even now, um, you know, everyone's asking me about Afghanistan and I'm about to go there. So I'll take the dangerous drive into Jalalabad and I'll sit down with the Taliban and I'll say, please let our yellow house continue and please don't punish anyone that's done been in the arts or taught girls or anything like that. And I believe I'll succeed. I'm relaxed, I'm not feeling frightened and I'm optimistic about what I can do. I'm trying to improve a very, very important point and it's to do with 9-11 because I'll be in Afghanistan you know, on the um, 11th of September is that our Yellow House, hopefully, which is artists, will still continue whereas the army haven't been able to. And um, I believe that if... Australia and other countries had sent communicators and artists and educators to Afghanistan. They would have been welcomed. And um, we've learnt that you have an Afghan father who may not want his daughter to go to school, but if you go out and you talk with him and you say, well, I wanted to come to a workshop at the Yellow House and you could see she really wants to do it and she does it, that same father a year on can say, I'm happy for her to become an actress because look how talented she is. She's been in a film. But I know those men, if I pointed a gun at them, uh, they'd just pick up another gun mm. uh, and the, their daughters would never see it. So this is where artists and communicators can make a difference. I have a whole part of the show dedicated to what you're doing in Afghanistan at the moment. Um, so we'll come back to the Yellow House there and what you've been doing. But right now I do want to talk about you know, the follow-on from September 11 and what it meant for you. You were talking about how it drove you to work on projects overseas. One of the places overseas actually was the US. Where does that fit into the picture and what role did MTV play in your activism? Uh, yes, well, when I was in, in Iraq, uh, this is just after 9-11, um, no one like me was allowed to go anywhere near American forces and I realised as a music lover that uh, having listened to, you know, Hendrix and all, like Apocalypse Now, how important music is in war, I decided to make a film soundtrack to war and find out what the soldiers were listening to. And even though all the American soldiers have been told they couldn't talk to someone like me, if I went up and didn't ask them what they thought of the war but asked them what music they had, they'd talk and then other things had come out as well. Of course, all the black soldiers were listening to... Uh, Tupac and um, 50 Cent and all the white soldiers were listening to Metallica and um, and uh, <laughs> Drowning Pool and, you know, white heavy metal bands. And uh, I, I realised that I could get that film on, on VH1, which is MTV, and it reached a great number of people. And there's tremendous hypocrisy, like the Americans are talking about the extremists within the Taliban, but look at the people who took the Capitol building. Look at the Ku Klux Klan and the gun violence. You know, There's more people killed in Southside Chicago where we made our film White Light than um, were ever killed you know, in one year in the, when all the American soldiers were in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. They call it Chirac. So um, it's very important to... Uh, see poverty and hypocrisy in America and particularly for Australians like us because we slavishly follow America into everything. We followed them into the war in Iraq even though it was, in even though it was an illegal war and Australian lives were lost and we followed them into Afghanistan. So yes, it's, it's important for us to look not just at what's going on in, in Rwanda and South Africa and Baghdad and places like that but look at what's going on with our, you know, our big uh, military partner, America. The astronauts, when they're at the moon, they look back at the Earth, it was this little tiny twinkling blue thing, uh, this sapphire thing in space, in all the darkness of space. And they said, oh, the atmosphere is so thin and it's amazing. We're all, all in a capsule together. And I think the world should have listened to that message from the astronauts because 
we're destroying our atmosphere and the planet and we're insanely killing one another. So I've never seen myself as Australian. I'm not an Australian artist. I'm an artist who I was born on this earth. I'm indigenous to this earth. I love that response, George. And yeah, one of the projects that you showed that in was the soundtrack to war documentary that you mentioned before. I want to jump into a song from that now. You've chosen an outcast track to play on the show today. Why did you pick this one and and what role did it play in the movie? So bombs over Baghdad. I was in Baghdad when the Americans started bombing and you know, there are all these wonderful people, uh, the human shields that have come, some of them come in double-decker buses from London. You know, I was there independently and a lot of them were very young and they knew my history and they come up and say, oh, George, this is so terrifying being here when the city's being bombed. And I'd say, yes, but has there ever been a time in your life when you've thought more deeply about why you do what you do and who you are? This is how you discover who you are. And um, it took great courage for them to stay there. And then when the American forces came in, it almost seemed obscene that the song that they loved most was Bombs Over Baghdad because they've never been underneath those bombs, seeing the city come apart. And the sad thing about something like that, like, is that Saddam Hussein might have been a dictator, but the people who paid for the roads and the hospitals and the towers and the you know, sewerage treatment plants and the dams and the roads were the people of uh, Iraq and it had taken 100 years for them to build a, all that in- infrastructure and just in a you know, week the Americans destroyed it. They even blew up the sewerage plants. And how long is it going to take for that country to restore them and how many people were killed? And then when you know that you knew, as I did, and the, uh, the brave... Human Shields knew that it was in an illegal war. Um, yeah, it's it's bombs over Bag- Baghdad has a different kind of meaning. It's a cut from the soundtrack to War movie by George Giddos, who is my guest today on Out of the Box. This song is Bombs Over Baghdad by Outcast, and it comes with a language warning. Outcast on Out of the Box. The song was called Bombs Over Baghdad and it was a cut from the soundtrack to war movie by George Giddos, my guest today on Out of the Box. George is an artist, filmmaker, activist and co-founder of The Yellow House, which currently is situated in Jalalabad in Afghanistan, where you'll be heading in a few days, George, as we're recording this. I want to talk about what the role of the Yellow House is in Jalalabad and how you set it up there. Well, there was a Yellow House in Peshawar uh, when I made Miscreants of Tallywood, which I set up because the Taliban were um, destroying the film industry and all the arts. And uh, we really fixed that. We made films and I got money from Oxfam to help you know, keep these actors and artists and musicians going. And suddenly I got a delegation from of Afghans came all the way across the border and said, George, we need you more in Jalalabad. And that's Afghanistan. When I got there, I realised that uh, unlike Pakistan, where, like, where the Yellow House was in Pakistan, there was a university across the road, um, there were no art schools, no film schools, there, were nothing for cre- there was nothing for creative people. And so I went and found this building that I rented uh, to make uh, into an arts collective. And the funny thing was it was painted yellow. And I'd I'd almost forgotten about calling the Yellow House the Yellow House in Australia. And we'd be out uh, doing circus shows for children and everyone would say, oh, gee, that was exhausting. Now we're getting back to the Yellow House for a cup of tea because it was yellow. (laughs) So suddenly the Yellow House... Uh, was born again and it was just a strange fluke that it was painted yellow and um, so my wonderfully brave wife Helen 
Rose has been giving uh, women's workshops there and um, when we first went there, uh, women uh, and girls um, couldn't be in the media. So we, the first film we made, films we made featured women um, in, in positive roles. Like one of them was called Talk Show, uh, which imagined that a woman could come to Afghanistan who was well-educated, who was born in, in Jalalabad and create a talk show like Oprah. Of course, that was impossible then. And now it's happened. Now some of Helen's students are doing exactly that. So um, we also had one called The Taylor's Story, which had um, a young woman decide to create a radio show where people could ring in love songs. And uh, now that's possible. Well, I imagine that even setting it up in the first place, it does sound like the Yellow House is a part of the community or, you know, a collaborative space surely you would have had to build some kind of relationship with the Taliban or communicate with them in some way in order to do that. Am I right in saying that? Yes, well, when we first did it, the locals assured us that it was okay, but we were always worried that someday the Taliban would come and cut our heads off. And Helen has to go out shopping and wear a full blue burqa. It's a bit like us having to wear our COVID masks. It's just mandatory in that community. And... um, Suddenly everyone came in terrified, saying the Taliban had arrived. It wasn't just the Taliban, it was Milana Hukani, who was the leader of the Taliban. And um, they closed off the streets, all the neighbours were wondering what was happening. I phoned Helen and said, Helen, when you come in, normally she comes in through the gate and pulls her burqa up and throws her, her leg up in the air like she's in the, in the can, doing a can-can dance to be free of the thing. I said, <laughs> don't do that today, Helen, we've got the Taliban here. She actually arrived and went into our bedroom and took out a gun because she thought um, she'd rather shoot herself than be raped and tortured. So that's how frightened we all were. And Milana Hakani went and sat down. In a, we've got a little uh, cafe and where poets meet. He sat down in the poet's chair and he was very stern. I thought, this is the end of my life. And he said, we've done an investigation into you. And I thought, oh, no. And he said, we've discovered what you're doing is good for the Afghan people. We're going to give you an umbrella protection. And um, it turns out that the main guy that's the leader of the Taliban now that's come back to Jalalabad is a close friend of his. I think he's even a relative. And um, I can show that person will know about my relationship with Milana Hakani, And you can see pictures and so on. But Hakani was killed. We don't know who killed him. It's very sad. And he actually sent his children, including his daughters, to the Yellow House. So that contradicts everything everyone hears about the Taliban. And when, when Helen was asked to be the first woman to sing um, to a mixed audience in Afghanistan for International Women's Day, uh, Hakani was in the front row cheering her on. Um, and so I get friends at the moment with watching the news saying, oh, it's all terrible and we've heard this and that. But Hakani said to me, George, there are bad, evil Taliban. You know, they're worse than ISIS. Um, But we're not like that. And uh, so, yeah, so it's very important for me to get back as quickly as possible. I'll have uh, letters of safe passage from the Taliban and say that if I'm stopped at a roadblock, I'm not nervous. I don't think it takes great courage to do what I do. And I'll get in there and I'm an old man with a grey beard and I'll sit down with them. And, um, yeah, so that's, I've just got to get that back there as fast as I can so that Yellow House can continue. But at the moment, um, in the world, there are a group of artists, and Banksy's one of them, who believe in art in the place of war. And I think someday when the textbooks are written on this era in art, it won't be Cubism or Impressionism. The most important art movement of this time will be art in place of war. So Banksy's created the Waldorf Hotel in in Bethlehem, in in Palestine, and he's bought a boat that goes and picks up people who are drowning in the sea who are trying to get to Europe from uh, Libya and places like that. There's a lot of artists like us around the world, and we all believe that apart from, you know, just the people that Banksy helps by picking them out of the water, he can't help everyone, but by creating that model, we're doing something really important. And the reason why I'm doing this talk on FBI radio today is because I want to reach out to creative people and say, you're not useless. 
you can make a huge difference and you can change the world and, and uh, more than anyone else. That's a hugely uplifting note to end things on, George, and I'm so grateful to have had you on the show today and I wish you all the best for your forthcoming trip to Afghanistan. I want to end on the song that you mentioned before that your wife, Helen Rose, had sung at International Women's Day. Tell me about this song. Well, Helen, Helen's broken a lot of taboos. Like in Afghanistan, if you go to a wedding, um, the women are in one tent and the men are in another tent. And for Women's Day, all the feminists in Jalalabad felt that they'd have a combined audience for the first time in history of men and women. And uh, they'd get Helen to sing La Shaningaha, which is like the national song, Black Dress, of, of Ningaha. And... Um, it all seemed to be good, but then we got word that terrorists, ISIS, were going to kill Helen and and uh, they sent Afghan special forces in jeeps with big guns and closed the road and I wasn't allowed to go. And uh, apparently when Helen got there, to, just to sing this song, she had a man with a machine gun on either side of her to shoot the audience if they started trying to kill her. And uh, it just uplifted all the women, uplifted everyone. As I said, the Taliban were there and they applauded it. And now that sort of thing's happening all the time. And then Helen went on to sing this and many other songs uh, for women's groups around the city. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of, you know, music can make such a difference. One of the first things we did, Helen was very brave, um, we, we created a, a big billboard renaming Jalalabad Love City and Helen sang, sang, all the world needs is love, and uh, it's love that makes the world go round, and we broadcast that through in Pashto through the city, and everyone, you know, the most radical people gave us a thumbs up, <laughs> uh, you know, Love City, and so now Jalalabad's got two names, Love City and Jalalabad. Amazing. Well, all the best on your journey back to Love City then. George, and we'll jump into that song right now. It's Black Dress, as sung by George's wife, Helen Rose. This show is out of the box. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you did want to come back to the episode, you can do so on the program's page on fbiradio.com. I'll also pop some relevant information about what George has spoken about on the details page there. You can also listen back to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye. Go to me.